together. So Lord, I want to thank you for the absolute delight of this lady that is my wife, but the privilege of us actually sharing and the gift and the thing that you've placed inside of her, the heart that you've given her, the ability to expound your word and hear from you. And I pray that you would anoint her and bless her and that our ears would be open to hear that unique word, Lord, that specific thing that you actually want to deposit in our hearts today so that we can advance as has been prophesied. Amen. Amen. Bless you, my love. Thank you. Thank you, my beloved. My on. Yes. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Thank you to Nick and the elders for the um, privilege of sharing the word of God. Um, last week, we started a new series in the book of Philippians, and the book of Philippians is known as, as the epistle or the letter of joy. And so this morning, we're going to have a little bit of a look at what the world um, thinks is required for us to, be, to live joyful, happy, contented life versus what the biblical picture of joy is as we look at the text today, which is going to be Philippians 1, 12 to 26. But um, before we get into the text, just start with what is the, what is the worldly picture of joy? What is required for us to, to live happy lives? The Ipsos Global Happiness Survey 2020 was a survey that was taken internationally of people asking them what it was required to make them happy. And there were top 10 keys that came out of this. The first one was um, having health and physical well-being, possibly because that was in the drop, backdrop of 2020 with COVID. Um, the second key, they said, was having a good relationship with a partner or a spouse. Third was relationship with children. Fourth was a feeling that life has meaning. Um, fifth was having favorable living conditions, water, food, shelter. Um, sixth was personal safety and security. Seventh was feeling in control of my life. Eight was having a meaningful job or form of employment. Ten was satisfaction with the direction my life is taking. Um, ten was having more money. So these things are all, um, if you have a look at them, they're quite, uh, our joy is linked to the situation we find ourselves in. Now, Paul, at the time of writing the letter to the Philippians, was, was in prison. So if we have a look at his situation, measuring it up according to this, Glips, uh, this Ipsos Global Happiness Survey, um, we can, we, let's just see what we would class him as. So number one, health. Well, uh, Paul was often referred to having a thorn in his flesh. It was thought that he had uh, some visual problems. Over and above that, he had been beaten with rods, and he had been beaten with, he had been whipped to the point of almost death. He had been stoned to, and left actually as death. So I'm pretty sure there would have been a lot of aches and pains in his body, scars and broken bones that had healed. So on the health scale, mm, not too good. Then secondly, he wasn't married. Thirdly, he didn't have children. Um, fifthly, having favorable living conditions. Well, he was in a Roman prison. Um, sixthly, personal safety. Well, he was awaiting trial. He had uh, execution, possible execution hanging over his head. Um, feeling in control of his life. Um, he was literally under the control of Caesar at that point, one would think, in prison. We'll look at that later, though. Having a meaningful job, well, he had had this amazing ministry going all over the world, planting churches, but now he was stuck. It was like his, everything had dried up and he was stuck. 
So if we would have a look at all these things, one would conclude that Paul is a pretty miserable man at that point. But actually the opposite is true. We'll look in the section now. He says, I rejoice and I continue to rejoice. And we wonder, how is that possible? Um, Chris was talking today just about um, hearing about the state of our country. And I think if we look at ourselves in South Africa at the moment, we are not a particularly joyful people at present. There is more complaining about Eskom and the state of our economy and the condition of our water and the condition of our roads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think as believers as well, there's a lot of pressure on us to, there's, there's cultural changes, new norms that are coming in that we are required by the world to just be good and just go along with the flow, even though they go against what the biblical truths um, shout out and tell us that we are to live according to. So I think there's a lot that we can learn today from, from Paul, both on the side of joy, but also on the, on the side of, of advancement. Um, just a little bit of background in the text before we start with it. Um, Nick, Nick did give some, but Philippi was a very, had a very proud history. That's the city where Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Um, they, <clears throat> excuse me, in 356, the little village was taken over by the Greeks, and it was renamed after Philip II, who was the king of Macedon. And he is Alexander the Great's um, father. So quite an incredible um, person in history. Then in 42 BC, it becomes this Roman colony, and its name is changed to Colonia Augusta Julia Philippensis, which is after Julius Caesar and Augustus. It was along a a, a major highway called the Via Ignatia, which was linking Asia to Rome, so a very important route. And it was predominantly or largely colonized by some um, retired uh, Roman um, veterans, and they were given um, free portions of land to be there, and in return they would form something of a military presence there. So um, even though the city of Philippi is actually in northeastern Greece, it was seen as being, being Roman. They were given Roman citizenship if they lived there. They had exemption from certain taxes. They dressed like Romans. They spoke uh, Italian. At least they, you know, they spoke Latin more than they did um, Greek, Greece, Greek. And um, the, the worship of the emperor, so the imperial cult, was something that was very dominant there. So if you came along saying that somebody else was lord or king, it really wouldn't go down very well. So with that backdrop, we see Paul and his companions going to the city of Philippi around about 50 AD, which is on Paul's second missionary journey. Um, And you can read about that in, in Acts 16. And the church was planted under great pressure. And so the Philippian church were, were, were under pressure from the beginning, but they were actually a beautiful people. They were very supportive of Paul. Um, there's a, a portion there which uh, the Amplified says that they had Paul in their hearts. In other words, they loved him, they supported him, they were behind him. And um, Francis spoke about the fact that they regularly gave gifts to support Paul in his ministry. We read about that in Philippians 1.5 and Philippians 4.14. And at the time of Paul now writing this letter, he, he was again in prison, and the Philippians again had sent a gift, and they had sent it with one of their members called Epaphrodites, and he'd gone there taking the gift, but also with a heart to be the hands and feet of Jesus to go and minister to him, because they couldn't all be there. 
at that time. So this letter is actually like a missionary thank you letter. Paul is, is writing to them. He's thanking them for their faithful service over many, many years. And he's also actually giving them an update on where he's at and where his ministry is at. Um, Paul says, and as I've said in Philippians 1, 13 to 14, that he's in chains, but he doesn't actually say where the prison is. And so um, theologians have looked at various options, and the one that is the most people think it is was that he was imprisoned in Rome. Um, it was a two-year period of imprisonment. We can read about that in Acts 28, 30 to 31. And in that time, he was, in, he was under house arrest, and so he was there, were God. there was a God that would guard him, but he was able to receive visitors. And it says that he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ while awaiting, whilst he was awaiting trial by Caesar. So that would have placed uh, the writing of the book around about 61, 62 AD, which is about 12 years after the initial planting of the church. Another option is that it was um, planted, at least that he was imprisoned in Caesarea, and again, we can see in Acts 23, verse 35, that Paul was in prison in Caesarea for a period again of about two years. He was in Herod's palace under God there. All the other options in Ephesus, which the Bible never says that he was in prison in Ephesus, but, but it does say that he was under great pressure there, that he had received a death sentence, and that he was then delivered from a deadly peril. Okay, so that's just the backdrop. So let's start having a look at Philippians 1. 12 to 26. And just as, we, as we're reading it together, if you can just take note of, are there themes that are coming through? Is there a word that keeps coming through? Uh, also, are there some keys, some biblical keys? So the Ipsos guys have given us their keys to what it means to be happy and content and, and prosperous, basically. Let's have a look and see, what are there any biblical keys from this text that we can learn from? So verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you 
for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Okay, so some things that come through there. If, I don't know if you picked up, there was the gospel that's mentioned three times. Each time it's quite an active word. It's advancement of the gospel. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's the defense of the gospel. And just um, the gospel is um, a term that means good news. In the old days, a herald would run ahead with the good news, often proclaiming uh, some victory or something. And so the gospel is a proclamation that Jesus is Lord. It's a proclamation that Jesus saves. Then we see three times there, there's rejoice twice, there's joy once, so the theme of joy comes through. But I think you must have noticed Jesus, okay, in this, at least, well, 10 times that I count, there's Jesus, there's the Lord, there's the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is just, he's in love with Jesus, it bubbles over with him, his passion is Jesus and the proclamation of Jesus. So let's start looking now bit by bit, starting from verse 12. Um, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, so Paul is writing here to the two Christians, to the church in Philippi, what has happened to me? Now, Paul is not um, very specific about what has happened, is what has happened, what has happened. Um, that depends on where he is in prison, as I said, but irrespective of which of the three possible prison sites he's in or the timing of, of the letter, in each time Paul has been proclaiming the gospel fearless, fearlessly, there's been positive results, people have come to faith in Jesus, but then there's always been this backlash. There's been rioting, there's been uh, persecution, um, there's been animosity, he's been falsely accused, he was, as we saw, put in prison in Caesarea for a two-year period of time. And in that time, it was like he was seemingly forgotten. Um, it was like he was being played as a political pawn. He was just being left there because it pleased this one or it didn't please that one. There was miscarriage of justice, deceitfulness. In the case of the Roman imprisonment time, before it, he'd been, there'd been a storm and he'd been, um, he'd been um, shipwrecked. So, and there was, there was just, it looked like, in, like, like the enemy was, was succeeding. That there was the triumph of wickedness. That would be the appearance of everything that has happened. And Paul being in prison, just being like the cherry on the top. So what was intended to silence Paul and the gospel message, that was all that has happened. Actually, there's this beautiful word. The next word is actually. The devil intended these things for harm, but actually, an unexpected and wonderful results has happened. <laughs> Isn't our God amazing? Instead of the good news of Jesus being squelched, we see that there's an advancement of the gospel. How does it happen? As a result of Paul being in prison, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So the palace guard is this actually an elite group of Roman soldiers. They are the ones that look after Caesar. They are his personal bodyguards. And so what happens here is that Paul is under house arrest, and there's a steady stream of these amazing palace guards that, that come to have to watch over him. And as we said, there was other people that were able to come and visit Paul. So as Paul is engaging with these other people, these guards have to stand there in earshot, and they are hearing the gospel over and over again. And the question that you would often ask a person, like, why are you in prison? 
oh, that would have just been an open door for him to share the gospel. I'm, in gospel I'm, in the, I'm here in prison because of Jesus. And the very chains that he held, which was supposed to be a proclamation that Caesar was Lord and that he was under the control of Caesar, actually became a proclamation that Jesus was Lord, that he was in control. Because Paul said, it's not because, of, it's not because Caesar wills it that I'm in this prison, it's because Christ wills it. And the the Roman soldiers would have heard this over and over again. They would have seen Paul's devotion to Jesus. They would have seen his unbroken confidence that Jesus was Lord and to be trusted even in the midst of difficult circumstances. The message says it like this. It says that this piqued their curiosity. I think more than that, I think it would have engendered incredible um, respect, it would have, and their, their ears would have been opened. And we hear at the end of the book of Ephesians that there are people from Caesar's household who are amongst the church that are sending a greeting. So that is the first beautiful positive response of something that was intended for harm, something that was intended to muffle the gospel, and instead there's an advancement. Then the second way that this gospel is advanced It says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So people that had been timid, people that had been scared to to talk about Jesus, now one would expect them to be even more timid because Paul's in prison and look what happens if you open your mouth. But instead, there's this amazing thing that happens. Instead of that, they are seeing that it's going well with Paul Um, It might not look like it physically, but the gospel is advancing through Paul, and God is accomplishing great things. And this brings out this incredible new confidence in Christ. It brings out this new boldness to declare the gospel message of Jesus. So we see that the chained actually inspires the unchained in, in, in this beautiful economy. So the first biblical key that I take out of this passage in terms of how do we, as people living in this world, in in maybe unfavorable circumstances, however you see your circumstances, how do we have joy? How are we overcoming? How are we advancing the gospel even? One is to develop an unwavering confidence in God's overruling sovereignty. We all like to quote the verse, Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know... You see, it starts off with an unwavering confidence, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now, this doesn't mean that our, perp- that our situations change to go- for good, necessarily. It doesn't mean that God answers our prayers in the way that we think he should answer our prayers. But it does mean Absolutely, it does mean that God is unwaveringly present with us in our situation, and he is unwaveringly at work to fulfill his purposes in, what we, in where we find ourselves. I'd like to just read a little excerpt from um, a book by Alec Machia on the message of Philippians. He says this, God rules. The pressure of, pressures of life are the hands of the potter, who is also our father. The fires of life are those of the refiner. He does not abandon the perfecting process to others, nor is he ever, in his sovereign greatness, knocked off course by the malpractice of evil men or by the weakness of good men. Isn't that beautiful? No matter what happens, we are in the hands of somebody that loves us. We are in the hands of a potter who is forming us and fashioning us for his purposes, for his glory, and for his delights. 
Um, so when disasters happen, disasters happen around about us, we can actually find joy when we start looking and looking to see the evidence of God's grace, when we start to see the evidence of God at work performing his gospel purposes. And it's often in the difficult times. If you look back on your own life, it's often in the difficult times when we actually get to know God more. We, we, we have to push in to trust him. We find out that he's faithful. We start seeing things from a heavenly kingdom perspective. And there's this actually a deep joy that can well up inside of us. So that's the first key is just the sovereignty of God. The second, I think, is to just to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our eyes on what God is doing through us in the lives of others. So just the whole thing of the absolute privilege it is to partner in the gospel, which is what the Philippian church was doing. Okay, so we see that there were positive outcomes of this negative thing, but there were also difficulties that Paul had to wrestle with. In verse 15, it says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So these people who've gained confidence by Paul being in prison and are proclaiming the gospel, some of them are doing it out of good motives. They are they're seeing uh, it as an opportunity to advance the gospel, to partner together with Christ and together with Paul. But the others that are doing it, they are preaching the gospel, but their motives are twisted. They're there's ambition in their hearts. Maybe they're thinking that because Paul is out of the way, they have an opportunity to like stand in the limelight there and they can progress and they can advance their ministry whilst Paul is left in the dust. Just a horrible ambition and rivalry, horrible motives. So what is Paul's response to this? And just to pause there, have you possibly intentionally or even unintendedly been hurt by another believer, by the actions of another believer? And what has your response been to being hurt or to being slighted? Have you taken offense or how have you responded? So let's have a look at what Paul does. He says in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So Paul, Paul takes us an incredibly, um, I think, mature and humble approach. He steps back. He doesn't allow his emotions to just um, like take control. He doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't respond in um, revenge. He takes a step back and he says, what is the effect of what has happened to me on the gospel? And so first of all, he's making sure that the message that is being preached by these guys is true. And he says it is. They're preaching Christ. And so he's happy. Because otherwise, if they, if they weren't, he would have been quick to talk out against it, which he did in Galatians and even in Philippians 3 to anybody that adds to the gospel or subtracts from the gospel or puts people under law, he's quick to talk out. But in these instances, they are proclaiming the true gospel. And his passion, as we've seen, is the advancement of the gospel. So here he decides, looking at the whole picture, he decides to let go of that hurt. He realizes he can't be responsible for their motives, but he can be responsible for his, his response to their actions. And he, as a leader, as a Christian, we are all under dis on display. Every one of us are on display. And he had to model a way of love, the way of forgiveness, a way that would advance God's kingdom and not detract from it. And I think it's, it's beautiful. He determines not only just to like, let it go. He actually determines to rejoice. 
in, in the message he says, he's, he says, and even cheer them on in their efforts. How amazing. So I just thought key number three is just for, for us to be happy and contented, let go of hurts. Just let go of offenses. It's not worth holding on to it. It causes unhappiness. It causes us to be bitter and twisted and even physically unwell. Let it go. And let's look for what's the positive of even that which people are intending harm towards us. Let's see if there's a positive in that even. And then another key, the fourth key that I get out of this is just stick to the assignment that God has given you. If you see in verse 16, he says there, Paul said, knowing that I am put here, the Amplified adds, by God, on purpose, for the defense of the gospel. I'm put here in prison. I'm limited here, but this is, my, this is the race I'm to run. And, and, and not to be, allow the actions of others to steal our joy and not to allow them to put us off course. Stick to what God has given to us. And that brings incredible joy and contentment. Let go of hurts. Let it go. Just before I move on, just a note on motive. Is Paul's reaction here saying that we can just have any motives matter? It's not the case. We look at biblically, God is very interested in our motives. Um, we see in Proverbs 21, 2, that he weighs the heart. In Psalm 24, 4, he says he's looking for clean hands and a pure heart. Um, so it's, we can't just have any motives. And, but the reality is that we are... We are a work in progress. I think if we are honest, we look at our motives, and sometimes they are pure, sometimes they are mixed, sometimes they're pretty rotten. You know, there's pride, there's, there's resentment, or there's rivalry, or all sorts of different motives that we find inside of us, or, or guilt, or whatever's driving your, what, why you're doing what you're doing. But the beautiful thing is that we come to God with our hearts, like what David did in Psalm 51. He says, he says God create in me a clean heart, O God. Just renew a right spirit within me. We go to him with our motives and he cleanses us and he washes us and he forms us. Okay, so let's pick up verse 18 again, the second part of it. So Paul is now focused on a report of the past and where he is at present. And now he starts looking forward. He says, yes, so he has been rejoicing and he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, so he's talking there about deliverance. Um, what is this deliverance that he's talking about? Some people feel this deliverance is that he would be delivered from the prison where he's currently in, Others feel that deliverance is that he'd be delivered from his body. So in other words, it's referring to his death. But there's another translation of deliverance, and it's salvation. The bigger picture of what Paul's at going on about here. Salvation is a spectrum. So there's initially, we come to salvation, we put our faith in Jesus. But then there's an ongoing process. We're calling that sanctification, an ongoing walk with God. As we, become, as we walk with him, we become more and more like him. We love him more. We trust him more. There's more fruit that forms in our lives. We progress until eventually glorification. When we put off our physical bodies and we take on our new spiritual bodies, that is the end of the salvation spectrum. And so what Paul is talking about here, he says, I want to till the finish, right till the finish line, I'm going strong in this walk of, of salvation. 
His deliverance is not just, I wanna just get out of prison, I want my circumstances to change, it's not that. His bigger view is that he will remain faithful to his king right until the end. And so what are the things that he highlights here that will help him and help us on our journey of wanting to stay faithful to our call? The first thing he highlights here is the prayers of, of the saints, the prayers of the Christians. So in Philippians 1.4, Paul has already said that he's been praying for the Philippians, but now he says, I need your prayers. He's not some sort of lone ranger. Sometimes we think he like levitates on a different level and he just glides along and nothing touches him, but it's not true. He was a normal human being and he's saying here, I need the help of God and I need the help of the church. And so um, I think we take note here that we need to be in prayer for one another We need to be in prayer for our leaders, particularly those that are under particular pressure at a time. We need to be a praying people. Because there's this amazing thing that happens that as we intercede, it leads to this next thing. There's a link between it. The next thing Paul speaks about is the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. In um, Amplified, it says the superabundant provision of the spirit of Christ. So that can refer either to that in our difficulties we cry to God and he gives us what we need, everything we need, or else that Christ, the spirit of Christ himself is our sufficiency in that situation. And so what happens is as people are praying, it's like our experience of the spirit with us grows and grows. Our experience of his presence with us, the experience of his grace in our lives, and it helps us to overcome So let us be a praying people because there's this partnership somehow, this mystery of as we pray, the spirit is is almost like magnified in the lives of those we are praying for, that they have confidence to carry on. Okay, so the first thing is prayer. The second thing is, is the help of the Holy Spirit. And then the third thing he speaks about is outworking of events. And we've spoken about that already in the sovereignty that God uses the events in our lives as they unfold to work himself into us. And as, but the thing is we have to be trusting him and we have to be surrendering to him, not stiff-necked and like hands off. As we surrender to him, as we walk together with him, he enables us to grow stronger and stronger in our faith. And then the, th- the fourth thing is the personal efforts of every believer. Paul says here, he says, I will, I, I will continue to rejoice. So each one of us in our walk, we, have, we can determine to keep our hearts rejoicing. We can. We are not um, just like the pawns of our circumstances. We are not just to sit back. I can determine to rejoice. And then the second thing is he says, I eagerly expect. And that word, according to Matya, is a Greek word. It incorporates three phrases. So the first is away, the second is the head, and and the the third one is to watch. What is he meaning? (laughs) So he's saying watching something with a head turned away from other objects. So the picture here, I eagerly await, it's like he's running a race, and there's the finish line over there, and I am eagerly awaiting. My eyes are fixed on that area. I'm not looking this way, I'm not looking that way. My head is not turning anywhere else. My, my focus is there. I eagerly await. And he says, and I hope. And our Christian hope is not a wishy-washy kind of hope. Well, I hope I can come, I hope. It's not that. The, the Christian hope is that the, the, it's a coming that is certain, but the, the timing is uncertain. But he says here, I eagerly expect and I hope. And what is Paul's goal? 
He says that I will not be ashamed, first of all, that I will not through fear or through sin or something like that be tripped up. That I will, he says that he will display confidence and have courage to be bold in his speech, is the second thing. And then thirdly, that he will have an unblemished record. He says he wants to keep on going. Pray that I will keep on going, that I will not flag, that I will not just stop and give up and hand the baton over before my race is run. He's saying, I want to continue. That is his, his goal. And in the outcome of all of these things, the outcome of the prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit and the circumstances and his personal effort is this one beautiful, beautiful thing. And we have sung about it so beautifully before. It was such a wonderful platform to preach from. It is this, that Christ will be exalted in my body. The direct translation of this is that Christ will be enlarged in my body, shown in all the dimensions of his greatness. So... It's not that we walk around and we've got this little pocket picture, picture of Jesus and we have it in our pockets and we walk around and every now and again we sort of show somebody Jesus in the pockets, a picture, and then we put it back in our pockets and we like these silent sort of undercover Christians. It's not that. What Paul is saying, his aim is I have this picture of him walking around like this massive big billboard, you know, like these lights flashing from his head. There's it's written all over him. It's like Christ is in residence here. God is beautiful. He is majestic. He is gracious. He is kind. Just the whole range. He is holy. Just the all of all of who he is. Paul is saying, that is my hope and my dream that my life will radiate who Jesus is. And that is our purpose in living, friends. Our purpose of living on earth is that we would be these massive billboards that point towards Jesus. So the keys that I take just out of this section is, so my fifth key is, not, don't be a lone ranger. Um, Paul said, I need the prayers of the saints. And we, we were talking about it on Friday when we were having dinner, that, um, just about the joy of doing, doing, doing a mission together, partnering together. It's, it, the joy is doing it in community. So if you're on the outside, it's a miserable place, actually. You're more vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Come inside. Come into the heart of what God is doing. There's incredible joy and fulfillment in the midst of, of, of the heart of community. Then my sixth key is to draw your strength in, and enabling from the spirit of Jesus within. Don't try to do this walk that we're walking in your own strength. Because you're just drawing on your own strength. You become exhausted. You become disillusioned. You, you trip and you fall, and it's, and it's horrible. It's draw. I can do all things. How? Through Christ Jesus who enables me. And then as, as we're abiding in the vine, that's when the fruit comes. More fruitful labor, more fruitful, more fruit. And there's more contentment, and it's a beautiful thing. The seventh key that I have is to be wholehearted and focused in all you do. I think a double, being double-minded is a dreadful position to be in. This way, that way, this way, that way. You're not successful in anything. There's no joy in that. Let's be focused on what God has called us to do. Give it all out. Give it, give it horns. Hey, or give, it, <laughs> give it everything within us. And then verse, uh, just my eighth key is make a conscious decision to keep your heart rejoicing. I think we've had that coming through a few times, just the thing about being thankful and we can do that. We can wake up in the morning. Whether you're waking up in prison or whether you're waking up in a palace, it doesn't matter. You wake up in the morning and we can say, God, I choose to thank you. I choose to rejoice in you in this day. I choose to look for that which is beautiful in this day. I choose to look for the evidence of your grace in this day. 
And at the end of the day, we look back and we think, God, look at what you did, and we give praise and glory to him. And that is like a habit that we, in, that we form, and, and it brings about a, a deep, deep joy that starts bubbling up inside of us, and it actually becomes contagious. We influence our environments. We influence those around us. And we need that in South Africa, people. <laughs> we need to be those that are rejoicing, who are having a different perspective, who are not grumbling and, and complaining about what's happening here, but are, are, are praising Jesus for what he's doing and for the life that he's given us. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Amplified puts it like this. He says, for me to live is Christ. He is my source of joy my reason to live. And I just felt when I was preparing, I felt God asking me this one question, and I felt it was the one question for all of us, the main question is, what is Christ to you? If you really look at your life, what is Christ to you? Is he an add-on? Is he a tag-on to your life? Is he in the Sunday box of your life only? Or have you opened your Monday to Friday box part of your life, your working, your studying, your relationships, your decision-making process? Is he in there? What about your Saturday, like a picture of your sport, your recreation, your entertainment? Is he there? Is Christ your life? Is he in all the aspects of your life? Is he a genie in the bottle? So he's there and he's just at your beck and call. You, you, just, you just allow him in when you want some, some sort of material provision. You're, you want him just to be there to make you happy. That's Jesus to you. Um, is, he, um, is he your savior? Is he your ticket to heaven? But as soon as he starts making any sort of demands on your life, it's uh-uh. No, no. Just I'm happy. You, my, Jesus is my savior and that's it. Um, is he something of a, of a kind of a picture that you are striving towards of a good person, something of a facade that you are presenting, a mask maybe of, of what you think you should be, you're striving in your own effort. But the thing is with life, with difficulties of life, it has a way of cracking those facades, the mask slips down, and the question is what is inside of us? And in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul speaks about that beautiful picture of earthen vessels. We're like jars of clay, but there's this incredible treasure that's inside. So is Jesus the treasure of Jesus? Is he inside? Is he, is he your life? Is he your source of joy? Let's move on to verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So Paul here, he's giving us a window into his thoughts processes. He's not sitting there um, like morbidly looking at death or like thinking about suicide. He, he's just saying he's, it's his processing that he's thinking about. He's weighing up the benefits of living versus the benefits of dying for him as a Christian. He's giving us a little bit of a glimpse into his thought processing. And if we have a look at Philippians 3, I'm not going to turn there, but you can look yourself, Philippians 3, 4 to 8. There's this kind of an, an accounting process that Paul has gone through. So he, on the one side here, he looks at all um, the things that he thought were gain, 
which was his pedigree, his, all the things like his family line and all the things that he would take pride in, all the things that he's done, all his achievements, all those things that he has on the one side. And then on the other side, he looks and he looks at Jesus and he looks, it's like that picture of the pearl of great price. He looks at Jesus and he thinks, and he sees that Jesus is far greater gain than all these other things. Jesus is greater gain. And so those things actually become like dung. They're like rubbish. And he puts them aside and he, he just, he's, it's Jesus. And it's not just one process, it's like an ongoing process that happens. Throughout Paul's life, he constantly, as he is walking on that walk of salvation, he's seeing more and more and more of Jesus. And Jesus becomes more and more elevated in his estimation. He's more and more in love with Jesus. He's producing more and more Jesus' fruits. Until it's like a natural process, almost that death. You know, the picture of death that he has for Christians. He says, he says death is simply departure. So death is departure from this life on earth, which is actually, the metaphor is like a camp. You, you, you're like living in a tent here on earth. It's a camp light. It's a nomadic kind of an existence. But when we go to be with Jesus, it's just a departure from that to actually to, to our actual home. It's like when we go to heaven, it's Jesus is there. There's this like welcome home mat on the floor. The door is wide open. His arms are wide open. There's this massive smile on his face, and he's saying, welcome home. It's where we truly belong. And how amazing. We, we, we above all else, we have this hope. Every other religion, there's maybe I'm going to, maybe I will go to heaven. Maybe I have to go to hell first for a period, and then I'm going to go to heaven. But we as Christians... We have this incredible assurity of what it's going to be like. We, we die and we go and be with Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. So weighing up these preferences, Paul is kind of tending really towards, he's run a hard race, he's run a good race, he's tending towards, oh, it would be so nice to go and be with Jesus. But then he, he thinks in verse 24, he says, it is more necessary for you, for you, that I remain in the body or that I continue to live. The ESV says it's on your account. So he has this growing conviction then that God actually has more for him to do on earth. And it's not like, oh man, I've got to stay here and there's this big drudgery about it. It's that incredible privilege that he has of partnering together with Christ and seeing people mature, people coming to faith in Jesus. Just that's what he talks about, fruitful labor. And he, he gets this growing conviction that he, he will actually carry on earth for a bit longer so that the people can grow in their faith and that they can grow in their joy. And um, I was just looking, there's this historian Eusebius, he writes in the Ecclesiastical History, um, he implies there in his writings that Paul was released from that two-year period, if it was in Rome, that he was released from prison. And the, in the early church writings, it speaks also about Paul taking the gospel to Spain, which was his intention. So they've kind of put together that there possibly was a fourth missionary journey after Paul was released from prison where he gets to Spain and he visits some of these other places that he wanted to visit, including um, Philippi. So in verse 26, New Living Translation says, when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because because of what he is doing through me. So he's saying, Paul's saying, instead of being jealous when other people succeed, like those guys originally did with the wrong motives, you know. Let us rejoice when we see somebody going strong, you know, leading worship well or taking somebody on mission. Let's not think, oh man, you know, like be envious and that. Let's rejoice. Let's throw a party together because ultimately the joy goes to, that glory goes to Jesus. 
So my ninth key was be a blessing to others. We know that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And how amazing it could be if our lives can be those that bring maturity in the lives of others, growth in the lives of others, joy in the lives of others. What a joy uh, bubbles up in, within us. And then just my last key is remember that God keeps us alive for his purposes. He holds life and death in his hands. He decides how many days we're going to live. So let's not fear death. It will come when it comes. But let's make sure that we are fully running full tilt until the final day when Jesus says, okay, time to come home. So my, in summary, I would say when we're looking at joy, Jesus is the key to joy and contentment. Thanks. A wonderful, wonderful word, Ingrid. Thank you. Won't you stand with me? Um, as uh, only Mikey's up, is there only you, Mikey? Um, so much there, so much, so much out of that preach. Um, that is for us to take. Wouldn't you say amen to that? There's, there's so much in there. That's probably a, a, an exquisite discipleship preach where all of us look at a text, which we probably have read a few times, and you think, cool, cool. But as Ingrid opened the text and, and, and embellished the text biblically, not emotionally, um, I just thought, good, good, good. Um, and um, I don't want to say I have a dream, but I believe it's the dream that God has put in my heart for us. And I think this is so important, and, and I'm not going to let go of it until Jesus takes me away. But please listen to this, that every one of us, every one of us, I mean, I've known Ingrid for 20 plus years, and she's somebody that's um, married to Francois, brought up three girls, done her stuff. But what she's done is she's applied herself to the Word, and she's taken the trouble to study. She's a disciplined person, as is her husband. But they have, um, they have, they have said, Lord, here, is a, here are our lives, and we want to give you our lives. And this is the dream, that every one of us in this room would do what Ingrid has just done. Can I repeat that? Without exception, that all of us, and I wish I could get on my knees now, and every one of us, no excuses would say, Lord, this is your beautiful word that you gave me. And rather than some guru that comes out from Britain or Australia or New Zealand or Brazil that comes to dazzle us with a word that I, Ingrid Kutsia, or whoever amongst us here, the least among us, can say, Lord, I'm going to take this word of yours and I'm going to open the Bible and I'm going to teach myself the word and I'm going to pass this word that we would all... Speak the word of God. My chains, Paul is saying to all of us that we would all speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. That we will not be ashamed, but we'll have more courage. That we would all have fruitful labor and that we would all progress in joy. And so I want that word to stay clear in our minds. Is all of us are going to go there and think, oh, I've got a bad attitude, Lord. I've got stuff to moan about. I'm done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exalt Jesus. And uh, I'm going to hand over to Chris in a moment. 
But, I, but my injunction to us, everybody in this room, from the front to the back, I have this dream that you would open the Bible and be it with your mother-in-law or your child or your office or your enemy or who, <laughs> I don't know who, but that we would all open this word, amen? Because we all have access into the holy place. We have all been given of the spirit of Jesus. Paul is a murderer. He, I was reading this week, he's a murderer of the church. He, he, he saw Christians killed. He was a bad dude. He was a bad religious murderous Pharisee like he'll behead you but Jesus touched him and he said me the worst of sinners and God used him amen and I'm so excited if you say Nick what excites you more than anything is that we would all say I'm going to go home and I'm going to get this word into me and I'm going to learn it so I'm going to I'm going to go speak to the trees and then I'm going to start a life group I'm going to gather people the old gray men in this church with gray hair please would you continue the young ladies would you do what we have to do do I get an amen from anybody? That we would all, brothers and sisters, from the least of us, from the most unqualified, say, Lord, your word is precious and it's powerful. And I want to learn how to take the word of God like it is. And I'm going to go and give it to somebody. Amen. And then Jesus will come back. I don't want to start preaching, but I'm very excited that if Ingrid can do what she's doing, and yes, she does have a gift, but all of us can do something of that. Can you give me a wave offering? Lord, can you come upon us and we take responsibility, amen? And, and we, we can do this. We can take your word. We can learn it. We can live it. We can delight ourselves in it. And then we can be fruitful with it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chris. Sometimes these moments are, are incredible. And I, I, even as Ingrid was preaching, I just felt my heart burning inside of me. I'm sure all of us did here. Um, and I, one of the things I think she was saying is, is there's a, is an invitation to this life, wholehearted pursuit of Jesus. That, that's what the invitation was. That's what went out this morning is, is that, that Paul, through what he's saying, is inviting all of us to a lifelong, wholehearted pursuit of Jesus, which is everything inside of us. And, and I, I felt for us to respond is there's, there's two groups. There's, there's for believers and then there's for unbelievers. Because the invitation goes out. You might not believe in Jesus this morning, but this life that Ingrid is talking about is on offer to you. This life where even when the worst of worst happens to you, there's incredible joy that awaits you. There's this incredible life when you're in the, the absolute worst circumstances that joy can arise from you because of your hope in Christ, because of Jesus and who He is and what He's done. And that's one invitation for those who don't believe. And then there's another invitation for those of us who do believe to pursue Jesus with everything inside of us. And when we do that, the byproduct of that is joy. That's what give, is given to us, is joy. Joy arises when you give this wholehearted pursuit to Jesus with everything that's inside of you. Even when you're in the worst circumstance, Paul's whole life is, is Jesus is the goal. And, and that's where his joy comes from. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond because I think these moments are significant. They're not... They're not just like, we don't pass them by. And maybe just with our eyes closed. All of us just close our eyes. If, you, if you're not a believer this morning, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and you want this life that Ingrid is talking about, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. Just to Jesus, you can just raise your hand and say, Lord, I want this life. I want to put my faith in you. 
I want, I want, to, I want to step into, into your kingdom, into a different reality, which is full of joy and full of life. You can just raise your hand. Lift up your hand. There's nobody, you're not doing it for anybody else besides yourself and to God. I'm going to leave it for a moment because sometimes there's a wrestle. I remember for me there was a wrestle. There was a fight between actually do I want to really put my faith in or do I want to let go of this old way of life? And, and I'm encouraging you this morning. Today is the day of salvation where you, where you step into the reality of life that God, that He has for you. Where you, where you can let go of your old way of life and you can step into your new, this new life that God has on promise for you. Just raise your hand high so that I can see it. I can see, I can see your hand. One, I can see your hand. The back, thank you. Is anybody else? I just want to give you a moment because these moments are, are significant and important. Anybody else who would, who would like to actually place their faith and in Jesus this morning and, and receive this beautiful life that he offers us? I'm just going to take a moment just to pray with those two people who've raised their hand. Where you are now, I'm just going to pray. And you can repeat these words after, after me. And, and Lord, I thank you for this life that you have on offer for me. I choose this morning to place my faith in you. I choose to let go of my old way of life and I choose to walk into this invitation of the new life that you have for me. I thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And this morning I ask that you would cause me to be reborn as I put my faith in you. And I would encourage you this morning, if you've put your faith in Jesus, go and speak to somebody. We all here at the front and we'd love to help you on this journey because it's a journey for you to walk out on. And, and I would love to just take a moment for us as the church just to respond to God. And while I was sitting there, I thought, oh Lord, there's things that I need to repent of, but not just, not just repent, but there's things that I need to, to pursue even more wholeheartedly. And I felt that was the call for the church this morning. And and if you, if you felt actually, I want to pursue Jesus with everything. I want to give him everything. I want to give him all of my life. I want to pursue him with absolutely everything. I'm just going to ask you to come forward because we're going to sing a song, which is Be Thou My Vision. And, and, and I, I think it's great for us to sing that song from the front. That's in a sense our response. And if you want to, just come forward. I, come forward if you want to pursue Jesus with everything. Would you want to give your, your whole heart, your whole life, you want to give all of your finances, all of your resources, all of who you are, just come forward. And let's worship God together. I'm going to give a moment. You can come press in. I think there's something about stepping forward into the call of God. I love when Jesus says, come follow me. They, they immediately, they left their boats and they followed him. And, and I feel the call this morning is, is amazing, actually, for us to pursue Jesus with absolutely everything. Nikian's going to lead us in a song. Even during the song, if you feel actually God's pressing your heart, that there's something that you need to let go of to pursue Him even more wholeheartedly, just come forward and join us together as we worship together. So, Mikey, can I hand over to you?